What a bunch of blockheads. I mean, could Jesus have been any more obvious about who he was? I mean, these signs and these wonders, duh. But that's not entirely fair. Because we do, after all, have the benefits of living on this side of the cross, of having the the complete revelation of God literally at our fingertips. It's easy to be somewhat condemning of them for their poor thinking and decision-making, then forgetting all the information we have available to us now then and now. I thought about that a lot this week, then and now, as I try to do every week when I'm preparing to preach or or teach a passage of Scripture. Got to clearly understand the then before you can understand the now. So what do I mean by that? If you've ever been in a Sunday school class where Uh, I've been teaching on how to study the Bible. One of the foundational things that I pass along every time that I teach that is that a text can never mean what it never meant. Right? The Bible cannot mean today what it never meant then. The meaning we take from a text today, the application that we make from a passage now is governed by, it's controlled by what the passage meant when the author originally wrote it down and when the original audience heard it for the very first time. So that's the guiding principle at work for me each week when I'm studying and when I'm desiring for all of us to benefit from God's Word. See, I don't want us to just increase our knowledge. I don't want us to come to this passage today full of things to know and to learn. I don't want us merely to increase our knowledge. Do I want our knowledge to increase? Yes, but not merely that, not simply that. I don't want it to stop there. I want for God's Word, living and active as it is, to come to bear on our lives, to to make its impact, to challenge us, to change us, Uh, especially with a passage like this um, today in John chapter 5, a passage very rich, very interesting, very tragic, seeing how the Jews rejected Jesus. But what bearing does that have on us today in Orangeburg, South Carolina, 2019, Because this is not Palestine in the Middle East in the first century. What might their rejection of him then have to do with us now? What could possibly be our takeaway, our challenge this morning to consider how the most learned and religious and moral people of that day could think that they were God's faithful people and completely miss what he was doing and reject the son that he sent what could possibly be the link for us to consider this morning let's read read the passage and seek to find out 
like to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? May God bless the teaching and the preaching of his inspired inerrant, infallible, an authoritative word. Let's pray to him this morning for help. Oh, Father, indeed, would you send your Spirit even in these moments to help us. The Spirit who carried men along as they wrote these words down. Your words. True words. Words that point to Jesus. Every single last one of them. Would you help us to see him clearly as he's offered in the Gospel? And by your Spirit's assistance, would you enable us to embrace Him this morning, some for the very first time? We ask for this help in Jesus' name, knowing that He'll be pleased to provide it. Amen. Please be seated. So many witnesses about Jesus. How can you come in contact with so much testimony about him and still not come to him? Let's look first at this impressive number of witnesses and a ton of testimony that they give about Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus acknowledges what is pretty well accepted by everyone. If you're the only one making claims about yourself with no corroborating evidence or testimony from someone else, then what you claim about yourself is of no value. Now, we know that Jesus is no ordinary man. So if a man could give testimony 
about himself and it be valid, well, it would certainly be the man who himself is God. But it's almost like Jesus is willing to play along with the convention of the day and goes on to show that, in fact, he does have a wealth of witnesses and testimony about who he is. For any who might wonder about the truthfulness of the claims that he makes. So who are these other witnesses? Well, the first would be God the Father. Verse 32 says, there's another who bears witness about me. And, and most likely that another here is referring to two places, referring back to verse 30, and it's referring ahead to verse 37, to the one who sent me. Right? The one who sent me. He's the one bearing witness. He's another who has borne witness about me. And so the first thing I thought about there, well, how has God the Father borne witness about the Son? And so the very first thing that I think of is that voice that comes from heaven at the baptism, right? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and that is certainly testimony that, that the Father is bearing about the Son. But interestingly enough, John doesn't record that in his gospel, and so that's probably not what John is pointing to here through Jesus' words. Probably what John has in view is, is the sum total of everything the Father has ever said about the Son. Everything that he has ever revealed about the Son from the very beginning up until that moment. And, and we'll get to some of that revelation, some of what the Father has said about the Son in just a moment. So that's the first witness, the Father. Second witness is John the Baptist. You remember back in chapter 1 when John the Baptist was causing such a stir and drawing these huge crowds and making the religious establishment very nervous. And so they sent a delegation to find out who is this guy. And John the Baptist bore amazing testimony about Jesus. Do you remember when, when he sees Jesus coming in a distance, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he would also bear witness to the fact that, that he saw the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. And we, we looked at that back in chapter 1. And it seemed, at least for a moment that that testimony was having its desired effect. Verse 35 makes reference to that. They rejoiced for a while. It didn't last. The buzz that was generated was short-lived. And at least in the lives of these religious leaders that are in question here in chapter 5, it didn't bear any fruit. As amazing as that testimony was, as dot connecting as it was behold the lamb it's the lamb he's taking away as amazing as that was it didn't do any good for them but jesus says as amazing as that testimony was that john the baptist gave i can top that verse 36 my works all of my ministry, all of the signs that I have performed and am performing, all of my teaching, all of it, peculiarly divine, all of it pointing to the fact that he was indeed sent by the Father, the 
Father has borne witness. John the Baptist has given testimony. Jesus' own works bear witness. For what purpose? We ought to stop and ask that and not miss the forest for the trees here. Why all this testimony? It's not for Jesus' benefit. He didn't need it. It's not like he needed John the Baptist to tell Jesus who he was so that he might know that he was the lamb to take away the sin of the world. Verse 34, the testimony that I receive is not from man. It's not even that he's concerned about his reputation. It's not that he needs this corroborating testimony so that he doesn't look foolish in front of all these doubters. No, no, listen to them. They're, they're telling you who I, he, he doesn't need that. He's not concerned about his own reputation. No, the, the express purpose of all this testimony and for the fact that Jesus is calling it to our attention, pointing it out, is so that we might be saved. That's the whole point of this. That's the second half of verse 34. That you may be saved. I say these things. That's what this whole elaborate thing is about. How it's been planned and executed and carried out. God the Father working with the Son and the Spirit together to bring His people to salvation. There's a need here. Salvation is needed. A rescue needs to take place. And all this testimony is given so that you and I might believe in the Savior. Might believe that He's the one sent to rescue us. And so here's a little clue. Here's a little clue, a little link between then and now. Their refusal then, what could that possibly have to do with us? Now, here's a little clue. Their refusal, despite all the testimony, is caused by their failure to understand their neediness. They're not looking for someone to rescue them. They're not looking to be saved. Not in the way that we need to be saved. They didn't see their great need to be rescued. All right, so all this testimony, these many, many witnesses, and yet the recipients refuse to believe in the one the Father sent. That's the end result of all this. The second half of verse 38, you see it there. Now, remember who it is that's refusing Jesus here. These are not immoral, ungodly pagans. These are not people worshiping Baal or Marduk or Dagon. No, these are worshipers of Yahweh, God's own people that he rescued from slavery in Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea and through the wilderness. He gave them the tabernacle and the kingdom and God's own people. So imagine their absolute shock. Imagine the outrage to hear what Jesus says to them next. In verse 37, His voice you have never heard. What? Our fathers were always hearing from God. His form you have never seen. What? Our father Jacob wrestled with God. Isaiah saw him in the temple. 
and you do not have His Word abiding in you. Now, wait just a minute. We know His Word backward and forward. We've memorized most of it. Later in verse 42, Jesus will add, you don't have the love of God within you. Well, that is just outrageous because we know the commandment. It's Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love Him. Heart and soul and might. We know all about the love of God. How could Jesus possibly make all these wild accusations? It's because all the accusations are true. And we know they're true because of the outcome. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The outcome proves all of the accusations. See, if they had heard God's voice, then they would have recognized it when Jesus was speaking. They would have said, oh, we've heard this voice before. We, we know this voice. If they had seen God's form then when they saw God who took on flesh standing in front of them, they would have recognized Him. They would have said, oh, there's something familiar here. If God's Word had truly been abiding in them, then how could they possibly refuse and drive away and kill the very Word that stood before them, and if God's love abided in them, how could they not love the one the Father loved? Do you remember last week, verse 20 in chapter 5? The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. So not loving the Son should have been an impossibility for them, but as it was, They didn't love Him. What they did was refuse Him willfully, obstinately. How could this be? I've already hinted at the problem of of not seeing our need, but I want us to drill down a little bit deeper. This passage shows us two of the causes of that refusal that could possibly be causes of our Refusal. One cause is rooted in reputation. The other cause is rooted in performance. They're, they're closely related to each other, and each has something to do with our not seeing our need for rescue. Let's look at the root cause of reputation first. Jesus starts building this in verse 41. I don't receive glory from people, he says. And he contrasts that with verse 44. See, their inability to believe in Him is linked with their receiving glory from people, from from other men. They're hungry for glory. They want fame. They want reputation. They want other men to esteem them. And this ambition, this hunger is deadly. It deprives them of sound judgment. 
You see that in verse 43. Not only does it lead them to reject Jesus, but it leads them to receive false messiahs. Jesus said, I come with all kinds of testimony and you reject me. Others will come in their name only. They they should know better. But they fall for them anyway. In the history books of the time, Josephus and others who wrote histories of the first century tell us that there were tons of false messiahs. Some with very large followings. See, the link here is obvious. If you're hungry for praise and glory, then you're easy prey for those who flatter and for those who are willing to tell you what you want to hear. And those that want to draw a following, well, they're willing to tell you just about anything. But Jesus didn't come to draw a crowd. He was never big on telling folks what they wanted to hear. He came to draw those that the Father had given to him. One root of the religious leaders' refusal of Jesus was their ambition and desire for glory, for reputation. And let's not be so foolish as to think that that problem remained and is confined to the first century. To think that we're not also prone to reject the hard message about ourselves, the one that we don't want to hear, and to follow blindly those who will tell us what we want to hear. The other root of refusal was in their performance. And Jesus calls them on it in light of their Bible study. So much Bible study. And we all know that Bible study is bad. Searching the Scriptures is bad. At least in the way the religious leaders were doing Bible study and in the way they were searching the Scriptures. Verse 39 They thought that eternal life could be found in searching the Scriptures. Well, wait a minute. Can't eternal life be found in searching the Scriptures? Yes. Eternal life is definitely in the Word. But it doesn't come directly from Bible study. You you don't get rewarded with eternal life because you were a diligent student of Scripture. But that's what the religious leaders literally, directly believed. Rewarded Because of your study. Rabbis of the day literally would use the phrase, more study, more life. And more specifically, the problem here, they believed their strict adherence to what it was they were studying 
was their ticket to achieving God's acceptance. Verse 45 in our passage makes it explicit. You've placed your hope on Moses. You think eternal life is found in your performance, in your obedience to the law. That's where they were trying to find life. But it's Jesus we have to seek life from, verse 40. We have to come to him for life. The the prologue, chapter 1, in him was life. That is the essence of the gospel. We could never obey enough. We could never achieve the righteousness that is required, that, that righteous requirement that Romans 1 talks about that Sam mentioned earlier. We could never have enough to please our holy and righteous God. But Jesus did. He was the only one who could. He perfectly obeyed all of Moses' law. Perfectly fulfilled all righteousness and, if that weren't enough, paid with his own life for our failure to obey all the law perfectly. That's what we're supposed to find when we diligently search the Scriptures. That's the treasure that's there for us to uncover. And it's there. It is there. Second half of verse 39. The Scriptures they were studying like crazy pointed to Jesus. So back to my intro of of not being so hard on these guys, right? Because we have so much more now. We've got the complete revelation now. We definitely have more than they did, but they had enough. They had enough. Even then, those scriptures they were studying, Moses, the, the, the Torah, all of the law, the writings, the Psalms, the prophets, all of it, pointed to Jesus. All of it was sufficient to prepare them for the coming of Messiah. Y'all, even Moses wasn't setting his hope on Moses. Moses knew there was another to come after him, a greater prophet, Deuteronomy 18 talks about. One who would usher in the day when circumcision wouldn't be in the flesh, it'd be in the heart. The presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple pointed to the presence of God when He would come and take on flesh and walk among us. The sacrifices, all the sacrifices pointed to the once and for all sacrifice. Their refusal of Jesus, their inability to recognize their need for rescue was rooted in the fact that they studied the Scriptures and they thought the point was to be good, moral people. And they missed the Savior and they missed the kingdom that He ushered in. Then and now. Again, to consider how the most learned religious, moral people around could think, could wholeheartedly believe they were God's faithful people and yet completely miss the point of what God was doing. Y'all, that is staggering. 
it is sobering and it ought to give us, every single one of us, great pause. Have you come to Jesus for life? Or might your hope possibly be resting unwittingly somewhere else? None of us, and I mean none of us, is above the need to ask this question. I I don't care who you are. You might be the most serious student of the Bible present this morning. You might know it backward and forward. You might can quote it like crazy. You might be a Bible teacher. You might be the preacher. But unless you're reading and you're studying and you're teaching, again and again, take you back to Jesus to your absolute and utter need to be rescued and how He alone is the capable and sufficient rescuer from all of our sin and failure. If that's not where you come again and again, if that's not where you end up every time you crack this book open, then you've missed it. You have missed it. And so my prayer this morning for every single one of us is that we'd hear His voice. That we'd see His form. That both His Word and His love would be abiding in us so that we'd recognize Jesus and we'd embrace Him. Let's pray.